0: so uh, I noticed three connections between this uh, parsa and the Torah and the New Covenant passage from the end of Matthew here's an interesting one before Israel's death he tzav's his sons the Hebrew verb tzav, tzav means charge or gives the commandment so he charges his sons before his death he says don't bury me in Egypt swear to me that you will bury me along with my father's and similarly Yeshua the ultimate son of Jacob solves his disciple sons after his death and resurrection it's a kind of a spin on it he doesn't just charge them before his death he charges them after he's died and resuscitated from death and he similarly gives them a mission uh, a charge another fascinating uh, parallel here is that Yosef forgives his brothers after his father's death they're scared after their dad dies they think maybe Joseph is like Esau and he's holding a grudge but no he forgives them and similarly Yeshua forgives his persecutors after his own death and resurrection There's this resurrection spin in the in the Messiah story you know after Yeshua was raised from the dead he could have gone and he could have wrought vengeance on every single person who is responsible for his death in fact you would, you would think that a hero of his type would do that but no he from all appearances he ignores them he just goes to the beloveds of his heart and he, and he speaks to them personally and, and reveals himself after his death that's a similarity one more connection is that yosef is the Nazarite from among his brothers is how the hebrew reads in genesis chapter 49 verse 26 and in this passage Yeshua takes a nazirite vow we'll look at that in greater detail in just a moment so well, we'll, we'll look at the Matthew passage first if you want to turn to Matthew chapter 26. I have to admit that one of my oh, and you can flip here, one of my greatest heroes in all of history is a woman, a woman who usually loses it and ends up bawling when she shows up in the picture. And her name in Hebrew is Miriam. In English, we say Mary. She doesn't turn up too many times. Uh, at one instant, she turns up sitting at the master's feet and learning from him while her older sister is busy making preparations. Uh, she turns up in this passage also. She comes and she takes this extremely expensive, what shall we call it? Anointing oil. Maybe cologne or something, I don't know. And she breaks it and she pours it over the master's head and she is one of my greatest heroes because it is such a simple but profound picture of extravagant devotion to the master just s- such a passionate attachment to him and I want my life to be like that I want it to be like that flask that's broken and poured out on over him This is a fascinating chapter because you can say to the Christian community, Behold the first century church. Behold your Lord partaking of a Passover Seder. It's not called communion here. It's not called the Last Supper explicitly. It's not called the Eucharist or Mass or anything else. This is a Passover Seder and I just want to point out how many times this becomes apparent Colin? thanks I have a ton of pictures in this one so you're gonna to have to really track with me here all right buddy gonna to point to you so <laughs> we're going to just go through these together the last seder from chapter 26 verses 20 to 30 let's count them together on our fingers the first thing they're doing is reclining in verse 20 in the haggadah the uh, kind of the order for your Passover seder uh, one of the the questions they ask are uh, we recline on this night for the seder this isn't something we typically do what we do for the seder so they're reclining. Number two, in verse 23, they're dipping. That's another one of the traditional questions in the Haggadah. On all other nights, we dip once. Why are we do, do we dip twice tonight? They're dipping. Number three, verse 25, there's a rabbi present conducting the Seder. And uh, this, is a, this is a beautiful picture. This is a rabbi named Yeshua who uh, leads a congregation in Hebron, the Jewish community of Hebron. Uh, His name is Yeshua Bar Shoshan, Ben Shoshan. And I just thought, what what a beautiful picture of a rabbi reminding us of our rabbi Yeshua who led the Seder. Uh, Verse 26, there is matzah being broken. In Hebrew, the breaking of bread is called paras lechem. In verse 27, there is the cup at the Seder. And verse 28 is telling. Did you notice how at Kiddush before we have Oneg, we always say the traditional blessing? Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the Universe, who creates what? The fruit of the vine. How do we say fruit of the vine in Hebrew? Prehagafen. Pri- Pri- that's correct. Now read chapter 26, verse 29 with that understanding. Actually, I read verse uh, 20, uh, a couple of verses before. Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I won't drink of this prehagothin, this fruit of the vine, from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Why did he call it the fruit of the vine there? Because they just did the blessing for the fruit of the vine, the prehagothin that is a classic Passover element at the end of verse 28 Yeshua actually takes a Nazarite vow this is the this is the technical phrase that you would use for taking a Nazarite vow we read about it in the Mishnah he says I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it anew with you in my father's kingdom all you need to do to take a Nazarite vow is saying I will abstain from the fruit of the vine for this period of time and the Nazarite vow is upon you so Yeshua took a Nazarite vow which may explain why two chapters later when they offered him the uh, myrrh mixed with wine as uh, something to dull the pain he refused to take it okay on one part he wanted to be alert he uh, he wanted to fully experience the pain that we as humanity have brought upon ourselves but on the other hand he was also a Nazarite at that point and he was going to abstain from the fruit of the vine until he would drink it anew with his bride in the kingdom and that day has yet to come which brings us to the present in that one and where will we be drinking it in the cup of the kingdom I kinda thought okay so the master we know what he's gonna do and he's gonna come back he's going to have a cup of the fruit of the vine he's going to lift that cup and we as the messiah's people through all the ages are going to join with him in singing that traditional blessing for the fr- fruit of the vine why because the is the same yesterday and today and forever he didn't leave as a observant Jewish rabbi only to come back as a gentile who has no clue about his heritage <laughs> so I wonder what that cup is going to be called I thought it might be called the Kos Hamalchut, the cup of the kingdom and inaugurates that millennial millennial kingdom Reading about that makes me really looking forward to this next passover seder it's it's going to be a beautiful time we're going to be following our masters example so we're going to scroll ahead to another element of messiah that really comes up loud and clear in this section there's a mysterious title that kind of comes up at the master's birth. It wasn't something that was planned. And this same title, in very almost eerie circumstances, something that was not expected comes up at his death. And it's the same title: Yehudim the king of the Jewish people. Why did that term come up at his birth? And why did it come up at his death? Was that an accident? I don't think it was. I think maybe there was a reason for it. It's interesting that in uh, chapter 27, verses 29 and 37, Pilate calls him the king of the Jews, Melech. And in chapter 27, verses 17 and 22, he uses the synonymous term, Mashiach, or Messiah. Can we all say Melech, king? And we'll all say Mashiach, Messiah. Mashiach. Now, uh, the Jewish people today are waiting for the anointed king to come. In Hebrew, we say Melach HaMashiach. Can we all say that together? Melach HaMashiach. And we know who the anointed king is. This is interesting that this is the title that came up for him repeatedly in Matthew chapter 27. He was and he is, and he's coming back as Melach HaMashiach. Don't you love learning with a Hebrew teacher? I just it's just always popping up, isn't it? You're learning new Hebrew words and phrases, but it's the language of the kingdom. Do. do, do. That's the little symbol for next slide. <laughs> okay. Um, in chapter 26. Verses 69 to 75, we have an account of one of the greatest heroes of the first-century messianic community, shimon Kefa, Simon Peter. In, in in English, we would just call him the Rock. We have a story about the Rock, and this was a very this was a very well-known story. This was part of the narrative. It's the story of the Rock's failure. It's the story of how the Rock betrayed the Master. It's a story about how the Rock crumbled in a time of crisis and I really appreciate this story because it just reminds us that Messiah deals with real people and he takes us from wherever we're at and he makes us superheroes for him but it doesn't make us any less human (laughs) so what I get from that is just like the rock each one of you are destined for greatness in the kingdom should you choose to accept that call and each one of us are going to fail at times, and it's good to remember our failures as we move ahead. It keeps us real and it keeps us humble. And uh, we're going to scroll to the end of the book of Matthew. I like this picture because it just remi- its kind of reminiscent of our Rabbi Yeshua. And. Um, I want to to talk a little bit about the mission that we have as a Messianic community. It's notable that Yeshua didn't give this charge after his death and resuscitation from death to a bunch of individuals. He didn't give it to just one person. He gave it to a community. Yeshua called a a bunch of disciples around himself and he forged them into a community. They were a tight-knit group. And they were, they were gathered around the master. And by the time he was able to impart that mission to them, they had become such a solid group. And it's true today that just as it is then, that we can only accomplish our mission as a community of disciples. We can't do it by ourselves. And that really flies in the face, I think, especially of Western thought sometimes, because we can be like so lone ranger-ish and so independent and oh of course we're not talking about us Canadians, only those Americans, right? They're the Lone Ranger, John Wayne type of individuals. No, it's it happens to be in our Canadian mindset also. <laughs> so let's 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 look at a couple specifics about the mission that the Master gave us. Number one, our mission is to make disciples to Yeshua who is the king of the Jews, not to make converts to a new Gentile religion. And this is this is common knowledge in, in the church today. There's a great awakening to the fact that we're called to more than just a religion. We're called to more than just convert some to Christianity. It's not enough to just get them to pray the sinner's prayer and then they're gonna go to heaven when they die. No, that's not enough. <laughs> we're called to make disciples to the master yeshua and discipleship is a significantly greater commitment it's a much greater investment of our whole lives and it's more it's a more strenuous process and for me personally I'm really happy that it's a challenge that it's that's a lifelong call Um, I think the big the big quest for us today as believers is to rediscover what discipleship is and rediscover what it is to make disciples. Amen. And the great thing is he's not dead. He's not the dead founder of a religion. He is he is our living teacher and leader. Wow. Um number two is we can't make disciples until one we understand discipleship, and until we become disciples. Um, I think that's probably the greatest thing that we have in common in this room, that Yeshua has called each one of us to be disciple, and we're in that process of discovering what discipleship is and becoming the disciples that he's called us to be. And I also believe that it is built into our spiritual DNA to reproduce ourselves as disciples when the time comes. I'm excited about that. It's going to be a real adventure. This is interesting. Yeshua talks about immersing these disciples that we make in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, some of the earliest versions of Matthew actually say, simply say, immerse them in my name. And you know, we don't want to get into like technical debate about that. I don't know if it's the biggest deal, but it's interesting that there could be early manuscripts that say that our mission is to disi- immerse disciples in the name of a rabbi because that's a patently Jewish concept. We immerse ourselves into him. Uh, we immerse ourselves into a new identity as followers of the prophet from Nazareth. And we call other people to that same immersion. Uh, number four, our charge is to teach them to observe all that I commanded you. And, you know, I, I was kind of musing on this earlier this week. I wonder if that doesn't include his instruction to keep the commandments of the Torah. Matthew chapter 5 verses 17 to 20, even the least of the commandments, could that be included in our great mission to teach the nations to do everything that he commanded us? I believe so. That is a great discovery about discipleship. And then how does Yeshua conclude the mission? I love this. He says, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. I think sometimes, as a result of our kind of traditional mantra that we sometimes say in prayer, we sometimes say Lord, I pray that you'd be with us, and I pray that you'd be with them. And uh, that's good. We do want him to be with us. But I think we missed the, miss the smash of his words. We missed the power behind it. To be, for him to be with you is a Hebrew idiom for saying, and I'm going to back you all the way. I'm behind you 100%. It has the connotation of, let's say you had a front line uh, of troops, and they had to break through enemy lines. And it's, it was like the general of the army saying, we're behind you 100%. Go forward, accomplish your mission, and there will be backup. There will be supplies. We'll send in reinforcements. Just go for it. That's what he's saying. That's how the book ends. Isn't that exciting? And of course, the issue is allowed to say that, because he said he has all the authority in the heavens and the earth. Oh. This is interesting. We learn from Josephus that Barabbas' first name was Yeshua. And Bar Abba means son of the father. So we have a political activist who was jailed for murder in conjunction with an insurrection. I guess you could call him an insurgent, a Jewish insurgent, against Rome. And his name was Yeshua, Yeshua Bar Then we have another man named Yeshua, who is also the son of the father to use that phrase baraba who's on trial and there's this choice between the two and it's interesting that even though they have the same name they're antithetical to each other and it's still true today there's always the true version of yeshua the living savior who's calling us and leading us and who wants to be so personally involved in our lives and who has authority from the father and then there's the false yeshua the version that we're sometimes tempted to make up in our own minds or Just kind of imagine. Well, I think he's like this, or I think he's like that. Instead of just reading the word and taking him at face value. So it's interesting that there has always been this this loggerheads between the true issue and the false issue, even in the crucifixion narrative. Let's look at the Torah portion for a couple minutes, also. Uh, Yaakov begins his prophecy by saying, "Assemble yourselves." and I'll tell you what will befall you in the ahri Hayamim, the end of days that's a very prophetic term the end of days and that's what he uses there it's not just talking about what's gonna happen later on in your lives and I think this is very relevant for us as believers today and this is this is a greater word for the messianic movement this is a greater word for us as believers in Prince Albert even he didn't just say I'm gonna tell you of things to come he said get gather yourselves together first and then I'll tell you And I hear a real call to unity, true unity, in the body of Messiah in that. He has given us the spirit of truth. And he has promised that his spirit will tell us of things to come. But if we as a people never even get together, how is he ever going to get stuff across to us? How are we going to hear his voice? sadly in some areas the messianic community is so splintered and there's so many divided little groups that if the master had a prophetic word to deliver to the messianic community in some city he wouldn't be able to because people never get together and so if for any other reason it's good to get together to listen to what the spirit has to say to messiah's people if you just get together and listen that's enough Um, uh, That doesn't really apply to us because we're gathered here in this room, and and we have been encountering Him, and it's been wonderful. But hopefully, it can be encouragement also. Let's uh, skip ahead. Skip ahead one more. Skip back one. Back and back two. That that forward. There you go. That's good. I like that picture. We'll just keep it with that. Um, there's, there's, a, there's a traditional blessing that a Jewish father says over his sons every Arab Shabbat every Friday evening he lays his hands on their heads and he says Yisimcha Elohim Ephraim Manasseh may God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh every observant Jewish father says this over every observant Jewish child every Friday evening for the last several thousand years Do you think maybe there's some untold depths of meaning to this little blessing? Mm -hmm. Wow. That's correct. That's the question of the week. I can tell you guys are are beginning to read those weekly e-newsletters because you're all like, that's the question of the week, I know it. So here's the question. Why did Jacob originally say that this would be the classic blessing by which we as the people of Israel bless each other? Really, it's kind of puzzling. Hey, may God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. Of all the things you could pray for someone, why would you pray that? Oh well, yeah, definitely. I think often Joseph represents believers from the nations, and of course Joseph and Ephraim are interchangeable terms really throughout the scriptures. Ephraim and Manasseh had a a mother who was from thoroughly pagan Gentile background, and they were adopted into the family of God and adopted as sons of Israel and they received full citizenship rights they received full privileges as members of the family didn't they They were brought into the covenant I, I was kind of I was wondering about that too because their Joseph often like we were saying represents believers from the nations his two sons are forgetful Manasseh and doubly fruitful and when you look at believers from the nations in the last two thousand years what are they often characterized by number one there's been a forgetting of the origins of our faith and let's call it the Jewish roots of Christianity but that's something that we're waking up to and remembering it's like wait a minute in, in this era. And number two, doubly fr- double fruitfulness. <laughs> it wasn't the. Uh, it, 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 the Jewish people traditionally have not been very evangelistic. They haven't been real, like, out there, go getters, let's bring people to God type of people. It's more like passive evangelism. But believers in Yeshua have been actively out there bringing people to God. They've been actively reproducing themselves as. Disciples, like we read about, yeah. That so I, that's kind of something that I see in that passage about maybe the prophetic meaning of Manasseh and Ephraim's names. There's another fascinating one. Manasseh, uh, sorry, Ephraim is blessed in chapter 48, verse 19, to become something. It says, however, his younger brother, namely Ephraim, shall be greater than he, greater than Manasseh, and his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. And the Hebrew there is Melo ha goyim. Can we all say that? Melo ha goyim. It literally means a fullness of the Gentiles. Ephraim will become the fullness of the Gentiles. That's an interesting phrase. Why did Jacob say that? Well, maybe we could look at the only other place where this phrase turns up in the whole Bible to understand it. It's in Paul's letter to the believers in Rome, chapter 11, verse 25. And he says that hardness in part has come upon Israel for a time until the malohagoim, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. In other words, he was he was like, okay, if we could use the Judah and Joseph analogy, he was saying that Judah has been partially blinded for a time so that the fullness of the nations, i.e., Joseph slash Ephraim, can come in so that the family of God is fulfilled. And then all, all Israel shall be saved. Yeah, that's true. Judah definitely had a significant role as the lawgiver, too. And Yeshua, the. The ultimate son of Judah. And, and Judah is holding to the Torah. You know, mm. It's prophesied. It's right yeah, you're right. Well, two more fascinating similarities between uh, Joseph's sons and believers from the nations. He blesses them in chapter 48, verse 16 by saying, "My My name and the names of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, live on in them and that is true of believers from the nations on multiple levels actually the 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 name of the God of Abraham Isaac and Jacob has lived on in the community of believers in Yeshua throughout the nations for the last several thousand years they have upheld that standard and on another slightly less important level it's cool how believers often will name their children by Hebrew Bible names it's kinda like one of those things we take for granted because of the culture we live in. But it's really cool that you have all of these Gentiles who believe in the God of Israel, and they call their children by actually very Jewish names. <laughs> Why? Well, because of Yeshua, who brought all of us in. And uh, the, last, the last interesting thing is in chapter 48, verse uh, 48. For, yeah, 48, 8. it's it's a question that's asked and i think it might have a couple of layers of meaning chapter 48 verse 8 it says when israel saw joseph's sons he said who are these <laughs> now when you read the text here it's a little puzzling you would think that he would recognize them it does say that he was his eyesight was failing, so maybe he couldn't see and maybe he genuinely had to ask. But on the other hand, he would think that he knew who Joseph was bringing to him because he just asked him to bring his sons. I, I kind of wonder if that isn't maybe true on a deeper level, though. What does that have to say about believers from the nations, the sons of Joseph, being brought to their father in the faith, Israel? He didn't recognize them. Maybe that says that believers from the nations will have a certain level of unrecognizability, just like Joseph. They're not going to look like your classic Jews necessarily, but they are part of the family. Just like Ephraim and Manasseh were part of the family. And they are entitled to full covenant rights. They are entitled to... The, uh, the privileges of being part of the commonwealth of Israel. I, I think Paul was really in touch with this whole if I'm in Manasseh being brought in thing because of the way he wrote about Gentile believers in his letters and how, they, how they're to be treated, how they're equal citizens, how they're members of the commonwealth, all, all, all these things. So, I really love that. Well, let's finish with that, and we can continue our discussion over Oneg. Mhm. Oh, yeah, and there's one more. <laughs> uh, it says about Ephraim, May he proliferate abundantly like fish within the land. Why? Of all the blessings you could give him, why would he say that? That he could, may he, may he proliferate like fish within the earth. Well, it's kind of interesting that believers from the nations and the Messiah, they did have that symbol at the beginning of the fish. <laughs> it's almost like maybe that was designed to happen that way. Thank you for joining us in this message. I pray that it's been an inspiration to you and your discipleship to Yeshua the Messiah. Crown of Messiah is a relatively small congregation with a massive mission. We're not just making disciples and teaching the word of God here in our city. We're also doing that internationally through vehicles such as the internet. It is our joy to offer you these messages for free at absolutely no charge. At the same time, we do have ongoing overhead expenses. It costs us something to produce these teachings and get them out to you. And we would appreciate it if you would, in turn, support our work in a practical way. Help us cover some of our basic expenses. You can do that by going to our website, crownofmessiah.com, and going to the donate page. Where you can make a one time donation or you can set up a monthly automated donation. I'm reminded of the words of Yeshua's Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 6. He said, Let the one who is taught the word share everything good with his teacher. So if you're being taught the word by us, we would appreciate it if you would take the words of Yeshua's Apostle seriously and make some type of return for the blessing that we are giving you for free that way we'll all be in it together and we will be a team accomplishing the mission that Yeshua has given us and you will go from only being a receiver to also being a giver if you're like most people finances are tight we understand that finances are tight for us too that's why we need people like you to come alongside us and to back us in the work that Yeshua has called us to do thank you so much for making that donation at CrownOfMessiah.com and thank you for becoming a team member with us. We appreciate it.